Well, beloved, the text to which I'll draw your attention this morning is Isaiah 43, verses 22 to 28, as we continue our exposition of this section of Isaiah. So if you're following along in your Bible, please turn there, Isaiah 43, verses 22 to 28. And as you turn there, I do want to make an announcement. It's really to amplify a prayer request that we received last Sunday evening in our service. And that is uh, that Tyler and Katie Stover asked for a prayer, actually uh, shared a Thanksgiving prayer request. And some of you were here and know this, but they are expecting their first child. And so this is a wonderful piece of news. We're rejoicing with them and, and thanking God together uh, for a little, the, the little Stover in the works here. And um, do right around the beginning of the year. So for tax purposes, we'll pray for December 31st. Um, but anyway, wonderful news. Praise God for that. Um, I'm going to read our text to start us out and pray for God's blessing. This is the Lord speaking. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, open our ears and open our eyes to see and to hear the heavenly truths that you are speaking to us in your word. We need your spirit to work in our midst to wield his sword, both to cut down what's false and what's sinful in us. And we pray that he would then build up what's true, build up the things of your grace that you're doing in us in Christ. Please expose sin where it's needed. Please remake us into the likeness of your Son. Please give me clarity and wisdom and faithfulness in my proclamation. Oh, to the end that you'd be glorified in our midst and that your saving love and your forgiveness would be magnified. Please astound us once again with how you forgive sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes doctors have to run diagnostic tests on our hearts to see if they're running smoothly, if they're doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, They might cover us with stickers and run an EKG to monitor the electrical signals of our heartbeat. They might put us on a treadmill for a stress test to see what happens when we push our heart rate. They might even run a little camera through our arteries for an angioscopy. Now, none of the things that an EKG or a stress test or an angioscopy is looking for is readily detected to the outside observer. A man can be walking around looking just fine, 
seeming healthy. You see him in the waiting room of the doctor's office or the grocery store. You wouldn't think anything is unusual. But something could be terribly wrong inside of him. In the secret and invisible places of his heart. He could have arteries nearly blocked. He could have arrhythmia. He could have valves failing. And while it might be super scary for us if one of these tests revealed a major problem, what a relief it is to find that it's there, that there is an issue, if an effective treatment is available. Wouldn't you want to know what was going on? You might be freaked out if they found something wrong, but oh, how you're glad they found it. And this morning, the Lord is offering us some heart diagnostic tests to test, in particular, the quality of our worship. And like a good cardiologist, he may expose some problems that were lying underneath the surface, undetected even to us. But also like a good cardiologist, the problem of exposing and diagnosing these problems is so that he can heal them. Now, most of our text is spent on the diagnostics and showing that problems certainly exist in our hearts. But then the whole thing pivots with a surprising twist. And this twist is really the whole point of everything. The whole point, to to put it in short, is that God blots out our sins for his own sake. God blots out our sins for his own sake. And as our outline, we'll look at three points. We'll look at first, uh, they're, they're all what's, okay? So hopefully it's easy to follow. The first what is what we do. The second what is what we deserve. And the third what is what we get. Okay, so what we do, what we deserve because of what we do, and what we get. So let's start then with what we do. And this is looking at verses 22 to 24. The Lord says, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now, in recent weeks, as we've walked through this section of Isaiah, we've seen God sort of oscillating back and forth between proclaiming, on the one hand, how Israel has failed his calling for them and merited the exile that they're about to get, and yet, on the other hand, how deeply he loves them and how fully he'll redeem them. So we've seen both of these things proclaimed over and over uh, since we began this little series uh, in Isaiah And most recently, what we saw last week, the last verse of last week's text, verse 21, is that Israel was formed for God's praise. He says that I formed them for myself that they might declare my praise. They exist for his glory. And it's for that reason, as we saw last week, that's the reason he will return them from exile in a new exodus. But now, after proclaiming that purpose for them, Moving on to verse 22, he wants to clarify an important point. And that is that his redemption of them will not be owing to their fulfillment of their purpose. They exist for his glory, verse 21. But he's saying, it's not like you've done your job correctly. You exist for my praise. But let's talk about your praise, the way you praise me. 
He's not going to rescue them because they've done their job right. It is quite to the contrary. Yet you did not call upon me. Throughout the Bible, to call upon the Lord is shorthand, especially in the Old Testament, for worshiping Him. It just represents all of worship. It comes up in multiple places in Genesis where people are said to call upon the name of the Lord. And you can hear in Psalm 50, verses 14 to 15, how it's interwoven with different aspects of worship. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So calling on the Lord is is worship. And it's a beautiful picture of worship because it conveys, on the one hand, both dependence on Him. It's like saying, Lord, I need you. I need you. He says in the day of trouble there in Psalm 50. But it also as a picture of communion with Him, desiring to be with Him, saying, Lord, we want you near. To call on Him is to draw Him near. To say with our worship, we need you here with us. This is the heart of worship, dependence and communion. We need God and we want to be with God. Now, in order to call on the Lord, you have to see him worthy of having near. You have to fear him with a reverent heart and you have to desire him with a longing heart. Because if he doesn't matter to you, you won't call on him. Doesn't our prayer life bear out this fact? In times that we see, we don't think much of the Lord. We're not trembling at His greatness. We're not longing for His presence. We don't pray. Now you may know that in His law, God had given Israel an intricate system of offerings and sacrifices by which they were supposed to worship Him and call upon Him. And these offerings did things like atone for their sins and accompany vows they paid to God. Or even just simply express their devotion to him as a free will offering. So all these references in verses 23 and 24. uh, Verse 23, sheep for burnt offerings, sacrifices, offerings, frankincense. And then in verse 24, sweet cane and the fat of sacrifices. These are all references to this intricate ceremonial system by which God had commanded his people to worship him. Now, if we just read verses 23 and 24 in isolation, when he says, you have not brought me these things, we might conclude that Israel was slacking on their orders. They just weren't coming with their sheep and their goats, etc. But throughout the Old Testament, and even Isaiah in particular, you see that this was not what was happening. It's not that they weren't doing these worship practices. They kept the gears turning. The key to the problem is in verse 22, that the people aren't calling on the Lord in all these things. And even more damning is that they are weary of him. They're tired of him. We hear about the same thing going on back in chapter 1 of Isaiah when the Lord said to his people in verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, and etc. He goes on to describe all the things they're doing. So he's saying there, you're doing it, but I'm sick of it. I don't want you to do it anymore, which is a shocking thing to hear. Your sacrifices don't please me. And we might ask, why not, God? Well, in verse 15 there in Isaiah 1, he says, Your hands are full of blood. And he goes on to talk about injustice, oppression, 
and wickedness that reigns among them. He says, I don't want your hypocritical outward worship when in, in reality you're full of injustice. So the outward machinery of worship is turning, but something is terribly amiss. The Lord has their sheep, He has their goats, but He doesn't have their hearts. And as a result, it seems like what he's saying here is that he does not accept their offerings. This might be a shock to them. They might be thinking, we've been giving you all these things, God. What do you mean? He's saying, they don't count to me. They don't please me. Then you could imagine them saying, how could you find fault with us? We have kept your rules. You've given us these burdens, these rules, and we are keeping them. How could you fail to accept them? And so he clarifies in verse 23 by saying, I have not burdened you with these offerings. In fact, the fact that they are feeling burdened, as it seems implied by him saying this, that they feel burdened by these things is a dangerous sign. This is smoke coming out of your car engine, coming out of the hood. This is a problem. Actually, as verse 24 tells us, the burden goes in the other direction. God says, I'm the one burdened by your disobedience, your sin, and your iniquity. Now, God can't be burdened in the sense of actually growing tired or being changed for the worse. He's eternally full and perfect and blessed in everything he is. He never runs out of power or happiness in himself. He's not panting in exhaustion. However, the Bible often uses the terminology of burdening or trying or wearying God to talk about sin and unbelief. And even back earlier in Isaiah, in 7.13, God, through Isaiah, had told King Ahaz, ask me for a sign. I want to perform a sign for you to strengthen your faith. And King Ahaz refused to ask God for a sign, which is a mark of unbelief. Listen to Isaiah's frustrated response on behalf of the Lord. He says, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? This is the sense in which our sin and our unbelief wearies God. So if we grow tired with God, if we're weary of God, then our outward displays of worship, our outward practices of worship do not please Him. They don't satisfy Him. It's, it's, it's the opposite. The wayward sinfulness of our hearts will actually weigh him down with grief and anger. This is not what I want, he says. And as I said, to, for Israel to see worshiping and obeying God as a burden, which again seems implied in verse 23, that is a big alarm bell when he says, I have not burdened you for all the blessings that he's given them in the promised land. The offerings he's called them to give are really quite reasonable. And even beyond the ceremonial worship, the the sacrifice system, all of his laws are meant to be means of enjoying his holiness, means of enjoying his presence with them as their covenant God. It's a way that they commune with him. They keep his law, they get to enjoy him, and they get to call on him. This is why he made them his people. This is why he gave them his commands. So if that's God's purpose, it takes a certain kind of hardness of heart to distort those benefits into a burden. It would be like feeling burdened to receive an instruction like, 
the food is done grilling, let's come and have some dinner. Or feeling burdened by the necessity of having to chew to enjoy your food. Can you imagine the insanity of complaining that you have to come to the table? Someone's barbecued a nice meal for you. You have to come to the table and sit down and chew it. What a drag, what a burden. What that means, what that indicates is that you don't think very much of the benefits that are being offered to you. So like Israel this morning, the Lord is testing our hearts. When we worship, and this is in private, in our Bible reading, our prayer, everything we talked about in the recent Equipping Hour series, or here in public when we gather to worship Him. And even more generally, when we obey Him, as in a sense all of our life under God is supposed to be worship, do our souls tire of Him? Do we want to be with Him? Do we feel a need for Him? How close is the match between our outward activity and a heart that calls upon the Lord? Now, thankfully, in Christ, we have a far superior way of worship opened up for us, of access to the Father, as the New Testament tells us, through the mediation of the Son. And it also says that the indwelling Holy Spirit of adoption is the one who draws our hearts internally to come to the Lord and call Him Father and worship Him as Father. Yet even with this more perfect way of worship opened up to us, we're still not immune to the drifting heart that Israel exhibits here. So because we still face that danger, the Lord is giving us an insightful test that we can apply to our hearts to measure the quality of our worship. If my obligation to worship God and to obey Him more generally feels like a burden, like something He is taking from me, This is a red flag. This is not a good sign. This is a signal that our heart is not in good condition. And I'd encourage you to consider also whether your pattern of attendance in our worship, our equipping hour, when that's happening, it's on break now, our corporate worship, our evening worship, our community groups, does your pattern of attendance of these things indicate a boredom with God? Does it feel like a burden to hear me say that you should be at all those things, brothers and sisters? And I acknowledge, sure, there are legitimate reasons to miss. Life happens. We all have things that come up. But if you can be here, and the Lord is worthy to be sought and called on, brothers and sisters, why wouldn't you be here? Are you okay? Do you feel your need to commune with God? Or are other interests capturing your heart and feeling more compelling than God? And when we come to worship the Lord again, whether at home, in private, or here in our gatherings, it's not just mindlessly showing up for religious rituals. That's the danger that Israel fell into. Wouldn't it be a wise practice for us before every time we meet with the Lord in private or in public to stop for a minute and take the temperature of our hearts? Don't just rush into the, the action of worship, but to, to assess where we are. Does doing this outward practice feel like something that I'm doing just because I have to do it? Does it feel like a burden that I'd really rather not do? If God said, no, you're good. Don't worry about it. Would we go, oh, nice. Or does it feel like calling on the Lord out of a heart that really wants to be with him? 
And wonderfully, an implication of his gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit is that he is faithful. The Spirit is faithful to work on our hearts when we detect that our hearts aren't right. We can repent. We can confess our sin. We can tell God how we feel. The waywardness is saying, God, I want to desire you, but I don't, I don't feel a desire for you. I don't want to meet with you. Please forgive me and please change me. We can plead for softening and for right affections for him. One of my favorite promises in the Bible, in Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus promises that God will give the Holy Spirit to the disciples who ask him. And that doesn't necessarily mean for the first time. If you're a disciple of Christ, you've already received the indwelling Holy Spirit. I think what he means there is he will send refreshed and renewed effects of his spirit to those who ask. And I can think of no better reason to ask for the Spirit's renewed influence in our lives than to tune our hearts to sing the Lord's praise with sincere devotion. Can you imagine a prayer that would glorify God more? So what we do... This first point, what we do is corrupt the worship of the Lord by maintaining outward practices, outward actions with a distant and bored heart. What then do we deserve? This is our second point, what we deserve. Verses 26 to 28. For the moment, we're going to hop over verse 25 because it is the climax of our passage and that's where we'll finish. But having identified Israel's sin in verses 22 to 24, here the Lord calls together in verse 26 a kind of court tribunal to determine what the outcome should be. So verse 26, he says, put me in remembrance, that means remind me, let us argue together, set forth your case that you may be proved right. So he's saying, let's come to court, let's have a hearing, and you can remind me if I've forgotten anything. In light of all the things I just said to condemn you, remind me if I've forgotten, present your case. Now, what sort of case might they make? Well, I think in light of what we saw in verses 22 to 24, the kind of case he's envisioning they might want to make is that they deserve credit for their faithfulness in worshiping him. They deserve credit for obeying him. He has just passed a devastating critique against the way they carried out their ceremonies. That in all of what they did, all their action, their hearts weren't calling on the Lord because they were bored with him. But we can be sure that they thought they were doing well. Verses 22 to 24 must have come as a shock to them. So he's saying, so Israel, do you think you have an argument that you could present to show that you've actually done right, that you're in the right, to show that you've fulfilled your obligations righteously? And it's a tone of mockery here in verse 26. Remind me, folks, if I've forgotten anything. He's biting in his language, but the point of drawing blood here isn't just to hurt them. He's tearing down, as we'll see by the end of this whole whole thing he's tearing down in order to heal then in verses 27 and 28 he affirms their sinfulness and what they will get for it he says your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me therefore i will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver jacob to utter destruction and israel to reviling now their first father there in verse 27 is most likely jacob after all, we heard, we've heard Jacob twice in this text, the very beginning, verse 22, the very end, verse 28, he calls the nation Israel by the name of their father as a nation, Jacob. Adam is their father as to their humanity. Abraham is their father as to receiving God's covenant promises. But Jacob is their father as to being a nation. 
And in Greg's exposition through Genesis, we've heard about how ugly and sinful the whole family of patriarchs was. Time after time, we've kept seeing that God and his covenant faithfulness and grace are the only reasons that this family has any hope. The subsequent history of the nation of Israel just continues to bear out the very same pattern. And then in verse 27, the mediators he talks about who've transgressed. These are probably priests and prophets who are supposed to speak to people on behalf of God. The the, the priests taught and applied the law of God to the people as well as representing the people before God in the worship ceremonies at the altar. And then the prophets were supposed to be God's spokesmen who proclaimed the word of the Lord to the people. These are the mediators, the priests and the prophets, and they have rebelled against the Lord. Now, why does it matter that these figures, Jacob, their father, and the priests and prophets, have sinned and rebelled? Is the Lord holding all of the people accountable for the sin of these leading individuals? Well, no. In context, we've already seen the previous point that they are far from innocent themselves. The point of citing the sinfulness of their father and citing the sinfulness of their leaders is just a way of deepening the indictment. He's saying, you're being just like your leaders and just like y'all have been all the way back to your father, Jacob. The rot goes that deep. It's like an exasperated parent saying, you take after your father, (laughs) mother. You're just like your father. And it's just like what Stephen said in his tribunal in Acts 7.51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. This is no excuse. This is no removal of blame from these individuals. He's saying you're you're guilty of it just like the whole family line has been. The consequences in verse 28 of Israel's utter sinfulness is utter destruction by means of the Babylonian exile. We've heard about several times by now in Isaiah. There are three specific components here in verse 28. The first is that the priesthood is dismantled when he says, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. That word just means the leaders of the sanctuary, which have to be the priests. For God to profane them means that he will count them as common and defiled. Now you may know that the calling of the priests was they were appointed to be holy to him, to be set aside for his use. But through their sin... Through their ongoing rebellion, they have made themselves profane. They've made themselves unclean. So he's essentially just demoting them to that status of profaneness because of how they've lived. Secondly, the nation is delivered to utter destruction. And if you're familiar with the book of Joshua, this is what he's saying is he's going to put them under the ban or under the curse. This is a status back in the book of Joshua, that God declared against the inhabitants of Canaan, the wicked nations that he displaced in order to bring his people in. And he said, They're putting, I'm putting them under the ban, under the curse, because of how wretchedly sinful they are to me. When he led Joshua and Israel against them in that holy war. So the ban is not just destruction. There is mustard on it. It is what one commentator calls destruction of what is most abhorrent to the Lord. This is what he thinks of hypocritical worship. And what's sad and ironic is that Israel has reversed roles since the days of Joshua. Back in Joshua, they were the conquerors. They were the Lord's arm against those who were under the ban. And now after all these years 
of covenant unfaithfulness, they have the covenant curse and they're under the ban. The third aspect of their judgment is in the end of verse 28, they will be consigned to reviling. Meaning that having been made a curse by God, they will be cursed by men as well. They'll be hated and mocked by others. So, what do we make of this court hearing? Verses 26 to 28. Israel has no case for its own righteousness. Just like their father, just like their leaders, just like the nation, all throughout their history, they have grown bored with God. They have turned away from calling on Him and they have defiled themselves. And so it is with us. And woe to us if we would ever cite our faithful worship to God as a case that we deserve His favor. Again, in the context of verses 22 to 24, this is the case that he is mockingly inviting them to make. Do you think that the purity and faithfulness of your worship merits you reward from me? Sadly, this is evidence yet again of a heart that's tired and weary of God. We start thinking that our worship puts him in our debt. We start thinking that we deserve good for him because we follow the rules. We, we see this kind of thinking in some of Jesus' opponents in his ministry and in the famous parable of the prodigal son. He throws some shade on these folks. You may be familiar with that prodigal. The bitter older brother who resents the religious, religious leaders who are opposed to Jesus. This brother, after the father welcomes the wayward prodigal so richly in his mercy and love, this older brother sees that and he grows bitter. And with a sneer, he, he says, haven't I done everything right? Haven't I served you, Father, so faithfully? Where's my reward? What do I get for all that I've done for you? And to think this way demonstrates, once again, we've grown weary of God. We've corrupted His worship and made it a burden. What do I get, God, for all the worship I gave you? Can you imagine the offense it would cause in a human relationship to think this way? To expect reward for spending time with others, with your spouse, with your children, with your friends? Look at how much time I've spent with you. What do I get out of it? To even ask the question is to speak volumes about how lowly you esteem that person, what drudgery you find in being with them, and what your heart truly values. Do you think that your worship and obedience merits you good treatment from God? That it indebts Him to you somehow? I know that you know that the answer is no. But don't answer too quickly. Once again, the Lord is inviting us to take our temperature, to examine our hearts. Over and over again, God calls us to evaluate our worship at the level of our hearts, our desires, our loves, And so to ask here in this case whether we think God owes us something in return for worshiping Him. If so, then it means we're bored with God and we're not calling on Him. And we know by experience, if you've walked with the Lord, you know that this can happen so subtly, that empty worship sneaks on us so subtly. It's so very hard to detect, isn't it? Sometimes you just suddenly... It's like an epiphany. You realize that you've been going through these motions, private scripture reading, prayer, church attendance, singing in our gatherings, listening to scripture and to sermons, corporate prayer, with very little affection toward God. 
And often very little thought toward God, even in these things. A wandering mind can be an evidence of this. And so this is one important test we can apply to our hearts. It's very handy to ask yourself frequently, am I calling on the Lord or obligating Him? Am I like a miner extracting resources? Or am I communing with the fountain of life, of blessing, of every good gift? What would go wrong if I didn't worship him? Verse 28 confirms what we've seen more than once here in Isaiah, that God disciplines his people for their persistent sin. And the terms here about Israel's exile are devastating. If we read this in isolation, we could easily conclude God is cutting them loose. And for us in Christ, as God's people, he disciplines us. And it can feel at those times when God is making us face consequences for our sins as though he's cut us loose. The text began with a red-hot indictment against what we do. We worship God with hypocrisy, with impurity, with bored hearts that don't revere or desire Him. And then the text ends with a foreboding picture of what we deserve. We have no case to argue our righteousness. Nothing of our own merit to commend us to God. In fact, if we have even thought that our worship makes us a case... We've only deepened our corruption by thinking transactionally about serving him. Like we're doing him a solid and we're earning something from him like the older brother and the prodigal son. But all of this, all we've seen so far is creative destruction. But the very center of our text, verse 25, there stands this tall, solid, beaming lighthouse in the stormy darkness. And as I said, this is the whole point of God's message to us, is verse 25. What do we get? What do we get? He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It defies description how verse 25 contrasts with everything before and after it. Utter sinfulness, utter dishonoring of the Lord, utter guilt, Utter destruction. It's clear, he's saying, it's clear that I owe you nothing, but I will blot out your transgressions. He'll wipe them away. He'll forget them. It's a total renunciation of any condemnation, any case he has against them. And in between these statements that he will blot them out and that he will forget them is this all-important ground of this proclamation. For my own sake. Now, in light of all we've seen, it shouldn't be difficult to persuade us that what he means here is that it comes entirely from his own character. It comes from no desert or merit or obligation on the part of Israel or from us. He's saying, this is coming from me, y'all. This is all coming from me. God's whole case against him in this text has been brush clearing so that without mistake or confusion, he can show us, when I remove your sins... It'll be all me. It'll be all from me. Everything that God is, He is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably. And one thing that God is, is good. And this means that when He chooses to pour out mercy on undeserving sinners, the bucket simply never runs out. It just pours and pours and pours. 
And if forgiveness comes entirely from God, from his own resources, his own riches of kindness and mercy, that means he gets all the credit for it. So I, I believe this is a secondary implication of when he says, for my own sake, he's saying, I blot out your sin for the sake of my own glory. It all ends in the praise of God alone. In verse 23, he had pointed out that they're failing to honor him with their sacrifices. But now through his outpouring of merciful streams of forgiveness, he wins glory for his name. He'll say the same thing later on in Isaiah 48, 9. He says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it from you, that, that I may not cut you off. And also in Ezekiel 36, 22, he says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. God's wiping away of sin is so So, so very good for you and me, brothers and sisters. But it's not finally about us. It's a display of the overflowing fountain of God's grace and kindness. Over the years of your life, have you received any financial assistance from outside from any loved ones? Normally, it's easy to be drawn to a personal narrative about our lives that says, I I have had to work hard for everything. Uh, Through diligence, through discipline, through patience, I've gotten where I've gotten. Well, if you've received any help to get there, it deflates that narrative a little bit, doesn't it? Maybe someone helped pay your way through school. Maybe someone has helped you pay down some debt. Maybe you've participated in in a loan forgiveness program. Maybe you've received some inheritance money. Whether this, these kinds of things have been true of you personally or not, we can all see how humbling it is when we can't point to our own self-sufficiency as the cause for the benefits we've received. We have to point at least some of the credit elsewhere. Well, God does us one better here. In our sinfulness, he's already established we have nothing but what he's given us. We have no self-sufficiency that we've offered. We've had no contribution. And so he deserves precisely all of the credit. And you may have noticed that the grammar of verse 25 at the beginning is meant to convey this very thing. God alone is the source of the benefit. He's pointing to himself. He's circling himself saying, I, I am he. Don't make the mistake of pocketing a little bit of the credit. The other six verses have established that so clearly. No matter how much we deserve otherwise, God completely wipes away our sins. And as we've noted multiple times here in Isaiah in this section, we are driving toward this climactic suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53, where in the Old Testament's clearest picture of Christ's atoning death, we hear in verse 11, By his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's where the sin goes. Christ has paid the price on the cross to win redemption, to win the forgiveness of our trespasses. If our sins have left a dark black stain, God does not blot them out with white out. He blots them out with red out. It's the precious blood of the Lamb. 
And just as we hear from Isaiah 53, 11, he says, through his knowledge, meaning through knowing him, Christ, God makes us the beneficiaries of this sin-bearing death so that we can become righteous in his sight. To be righteous because of the servant means that God doesn't remember our sins anymore. It means that he's canceled the debt and he won't hold him against us. It means he'll never again look at us through the lens colored by our sin, but only through the righteousness that he has declared for us in the servant. And this means that contrary to verse 26, we don't have to mount a case for ourselves. Which is good news, because as we've seen, we have no case. And it's not just Old Testament Israel or even the church today that's called to worship God. Of course, we have covenantal instructions on how to worship Him as His people. But the fact is that, as I prayed about in the prayer of confession, the worship of God is a universal obligation to all man. It's a basic human obligation because He's our Creator. That means that worship is due from us to Him. Over in Romans one twenty one, when Paul is arguing for the sinfulness of man, he clarifies that really the universal human problem, even among the Gentiles who never received the law, is that we have failed to honor and thank God as God, even though He's made the knowledge of Himself universally accessible in nature. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and all this time we've been talking about false and impure worship. You've been thinking, well, the, the charge of false worship doesn't pertain to me because I don't worship God. I assure you, this does not let you off the hook. Because just as God's covenant people are accountable to answer for the genuineness of our worship, you are accountable to answer for why you have turned away from worshiping Him altogether and devoted your heart to created things instead of the Creator. So we all have a worship problem to account for. And the solution, whether you think you worship God, whether we do worship God yet with sin, as believers in Christ, with impurity, with struggle, or whether you're not even following Christ and you're not even worshiping God, the same solution is God's free, abounding fire hose of forgiveness through His Son. And so his call for you today, and I urge you to place your faith in him and to hear God declaring pardon over your life eternally. If you're a Christian, maybe you've heard these heart diagnostic questions that I presented earlier and you have found yourself wanting. If you're honest about the activity of your heart, if all of us think clearly about what's going on in our hearts about the degree of reverence and holy fear that God deserves and how objectively delightful He is, what He deserves from us by way of reverence and delight, sooner or later we will all find ourselves sharply critiqued by this word against false worship. If, if you're not seeing that now, that's been you in the past or that'll be you in the future. So if that's you this morning, friends, those who believe in Christ, take heart. The point of this text is not how bad you are. The point of this text is that despite all our badness, God's resounding declaration for us is overflowing forgiveness. It simply does not depend on you. 
The sad fact about life in this fallen world is that our worship will often be impure. We will often find our hearts straying from the Lord. But the beautiful good news is that he has made a complete solution for that problem. First, we've already experienced forgiveness through the cross of Christ. All who believe are free from the penalty of sin. Secondly, he's also addressed the root of the problem by giving us the new hearts of the new covenant. Hearts that are able to delight in God like they never could before. And we're still growing and walking in this new creation. But sin's power is broken. And thirdly and finally, we await perfection of soul and body in the new creation. When we'll be all together free from the presence of sin. And we'll always and only worship the Lord with joy and reverence. And it warms my heart, and I hope it does yours, to even spend a minute thinking about what worship will be like when we're perfected. We will see Him as He is. We'll see His worthiness of our trembling and of our delight and adoration, and we will give it to Him forever. Beloved God blots out our sins for His own sake. It's none for our sake. The text has exposed the treachery of our hearts. Even in the very peak thing we're supposed to be doing, worshiping God, we can so easily hollow out our worship so that it's nothing more than an empty shell. Meanwhile, our hearts are wandering away to other things. We're bored with God. We don't see Him as especially precious, desirable, weighty, and worthy. And that's assuming we even seek to worship Him at all. If you're not a Christian, you can't even say that much. And with our hearts thus exposed, we have nothing that we could bring before God to commend ourselves. But God never runs out of forgiving mercy for his own. He has not run out yet. He won't run out on you this week. He won't run out of forgiving mercy anytime in the future. It is blotted out. It is gone. It is remembered no more. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy that you wound us to heal us. That rather than letting us remain on a course of hypocrisy and impurity, thinking that we're pleasing you and thinking maybe that we're earning points with you, you so graciously cut away all of those lies. We thank you for the work you're doing in our hearts even this morning as we hear these words. And we thank you that you speak a better word in the blood of Christ than all the mountain of sin that we bring to you. Forgiveness, full and free and final. We pray, God, that you would convince our hearts of the abundance of your mercy that you forgive sin. That we would never grow tired of calling out for forgiveness when we find we've sinned. Calling upon you as the God we depend on, as the one who blots out our sins. And we pray that those who don't yet know Christ in this room would have a right sense of their obligation to you, the worship that they owe you and withhold from you. We pray that the sweet invitation of Christ to come near and receive this ocean of mercy would indeed draw their souls even now to believe. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.